0: Episode 32 of The Passive Hang. It's Faeon here. Remember, check out the website, thepassivehang.com, where I've got the podcasts, I'm sharing videos, and now I'm writing informational guides for all you movement enthusiasts. Check it out now on thepassivehang.com. Thanks guys for joining in once again, it's Fayon here and it's episode 32 of The Passive Hang. I've got a really special one today, I've got Mark Roberts on the podcast, welcome to the show Mark.
1: Thank you Fan. nice to be here.
0: So Mark is a yoga teacher but when I go on his page it's a variety I guess of movement things that I see you always playing around with and then the list on your Instagram as well lists modalities such as FRC, MoveNat you've been studying online with Edo as well um, and i guess you've been continuing on with this whole yoga practice i'm sure you've probably dabbled with a lot of other sort of things as well so it's all very very interesting stuff and you know maybe to kick it off i guess with your practice at the moment you know how does that how does that even look like now is it is it yoga do you describe it as yoga or what is it
1: yeah, good question. Yeah, it's still yoga, but um, now you know, like, I've just had a kid, so my baby girl is coming up to six months. Mm. So you know, this morning practice looked a little bit like to start it off with a, I'd say, like a yoga-inspired sort of movement. Then she woke up. I continued, kind of like moving around with her, just and then got into some handstand practice. When my wife woke up, I, gave, I was able to hand off our baby to her. And then I went into my hand balancing practice. Um, so, yeah, you didn't mention that. I've been practicing. I've been into hand balancing now since, I guess, 2015 mm-hmm. uh, with both Miguel, who's in Melbourne, and Yuval, not so much in the last few years, but when I first started off. I, was, I did a few retreats with Yuval in Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this morning's practice was a little bit of hand balance after that and then some, I guess, soft acrobatics, you'd call it. Today's kind of focus was, you know, locomotion, but then kind of went into, you know, capoeira style, soft acrobatics, you know, mm-hmm. different things that I'm working on at the moment, macaco and Al French and this kind of stuff.
0: Awesome. Yeah, it sounds very, uh, with a lot of variety and I've been there myself with the sort of dad juggling duties in between, like doing some of your working yeah. sets and stuff. I, I think it's probably one of the benefits of moving to a more varied movement practice is you don't have to be so restricted to like a gym setting and you can just do, do what you like to do just with a bit of space. And then if you know, a little one comes to disturb you, you can play around with them yeah. for a little bit and then go back to it.
1: Even I find, uh, like, say, a handstand practice is more, is better for that than a yoga practice. Like a yoga practice normally, the way I practice is, like, very, you know, concentrated, an hour, two hours. You don't want to get disturbed. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, a handstand practice, like, you do a set and you come down. So it's quite easy, you know, if the little if the little ones there crawling around, you can just make sure everything's fine, and do a set, come down, and then play again and then, you know. You see everything's okay. Go up, do another set. So it kind of works pretty well.
0: Yeah, the use per square meter is uh yeah is very low. <laughs> you just need a <laughs> yeah, what like less than one one square meter and, and you're good to go. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. A little bit more, but even you know like rolling around on the floor is pretty fun with her too. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. so how do you juggle everything like you know you mentioned even today just uh just in this morning how you've gone through various sort of things um mm. do, do you maintain a sort of like core yoga practice and then structured around that is some other stuff that you're working around uh, how do you approach that
1: um nowadays I, my yoga practice is kind of like on maintenance mode in terms of like the asana practice mm. it's i'd say my yoga practice is more in terms of the yoga side of it more focused on the meditation and breath work mm. um, and just maintaining general flexibility that i need you know and that's you know after i've been doing that for 20 plus years so mm. that foundation is like it's there you know i don't need to do too much to, to maintain a, a good baseline Um, so that's kind of just on maintenance, like I said, just if I get even just, uh, playing with my daughter, I can kind of move through a bunch of different positions and make sure everything's working. Um, then I usually do my handstand practice five days a week. Uh, so I've got a program that I'm working on with Miguel. So that usually takes anywhere between 45 minutes to an hour. It's uh, he's designed me a dad program so I'm able to, like, you know, <laughs> like there's sort of little chunks like there's session one, session two, session three, whatever, and I can choose okay, on Monday I'll do uh, session one and two and four or whatever, you know, and just uh, choose just depending on and and rotate through that through the week. So I've got that five days a week and then. The stuff that I'm doing with Edo is uh, locomotion and also like um, they call it movement terminology. You're aware of what, you know, that's like all your spinal waves and your circles and all that kind of stuff. So that's pretty easy. Just I can fit that in anywhere, you know. That can just be like a little warm-up. You can just do it even when you've got a spare five minutes. You can just do that one. And then the strength training, um, I'm doing that probably, you know, three, four times a week as well. Mm. The good thing about the COVID situation for me right now is that I'm not working. So even though I've got a baby and very busy with that, because I'm not working, I've got, you know, the time to, you know, slip in some training (laughs) here and there.
0: Still, Still treat yourself even in this time where, you know... most of the time you might have your hands full yeah I'd probably do the same thing (laughs) but um, what I wanted to cover a little bit were maybe for the people who are a bit newer to you as well um, is maybe a little bit about your your background because you mentioned like you know you've been practicing yoga for for a long long time Um, and I'm interested to hear about this journey about where you first started with it, and I was reading on your website how you initially were, uh, you know, going overseas uh, and learning off some other teachers, that sort of thing. Maybe, yeah, w- where did the sort of genesis of that start?
1: So, I went to my first yoga class in '97. I'd been interested in meditation and, you know, like the, I guess, this idea of the Eastern uh, arts for a while. But it wasn't until I, you know, because I'd done karate as a teenager, mm-hmm. um, and you know, like that, you know, the Eastern mysticism, I guess, that, that held an appeal for me. And um, as a kid, as a teenager, I probably I got into it, myself into a fair bit of trouble. Um, so the yoga meditation was a, for me it was something. I was looking for as a way out, I guess, you know, I don't want to go too much into that whole story, but you know, I like most teenagers, I guess, or a lot of teenagers, I dabbled with drugs over the years. And, you know, at a certain point I realized that it was not the direction that I wanted to go with going in my life and I needed to make a change. And so the big change that I made was first to go traveling, to go overseas and just like really break away from that old lifestyle. And in that kind of search, I came across yoga, and then, so in '97, I went to my first yoga class, and I just kind of got hooked. You know, back then we didn't; there was no social media, right? So you didn't have all the options. You couldn't just like try different things, and there was no, you know, no one was teaching locomotion. There was no movement <laughs> culture. So, like for me back then, when I saw yoga, this style of yoga that I ended up falling in love with this Ashtanga yoga. I was just kind of amazed at like at what the human body could do. And then being able to tie that into a meditative practice had a lot of appeal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, in 99, no, it was 98 actually, I was in North Queensland, Cairns, and I got dengue fever when I was up there. Wow. And I, you know, I got quite sick and my immune system crashed And up until that time, I was still going to the gym and running and doing all sorts of stuff with the yoga. Um, But because my immunity just crashed and I was feeling, you know, had no energy, uh, the teachers I had at that time showed me this restorative type of yoga. And that basically healed me. And so then I thought, wow, this yoga has got something, you know, there's something powerful in it. And that really inspired me to go deeper into it. And then, because I was so also so hooked on traveling, I just decided, okay, I want to go to India, find a guru, and go deep into it. So that's what I did. In '99, I went to India, and backpacked around for a few months, and then made my way to a place in South India called Mysore, and that's where I met, started practicing with the the guru of Ashtanga Yoga, Patavi Joyce. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. (laughs) But I didn't have any intention really to, Mm. like, become a yoga teacher or anything. I was still travelling. I actually Mm. thought I was going to be a scuba diving instructor. Mm. So I continued my travels up to Nepal and I was going to make my way across to Thailand and try to find a job in the diving industry over there. Um, But India has a way of, like, just shaking you to your core and, it, it kind of did that to me and I had this big catharsis and I just realized, okay, I was, I need to go home. And so I went home, went back to Sydney and within two weeks I started an apprenticeship with my mentor there in Sydney. And then that's how I started becoming a teacher. And then, you know, that became my life's journey or my life's mission, you know? So mm-hmm. it was that catharsis I had in India was like a turning point. At the time I didn't know what it was. But looking back in hindsight, I realized that that was a big moment. And that made me come back to Australia. And then everything just sort of uh progressed from there. Mm -hmm. And then you know, in those days I had a job as a landscape gardener. Mm -hmm. And I used to basically, yeah, it was like I'd go, I'd be landscaping all day and then I'd go to do my yoga practice in Sydney in Paddington in the afternoons. Um, again, you know, like I think back those days so different to now, you know, like so I'd be working all day and then I'd get on the train. It was a 45 minutes train and then it's a half-an-hour walk. Then I'd do my practice at this yoga school because that was the only yoga school that taught this type of yoga in those days. Mm-hmm. And then I'd take the train back. So it was another hour and a half to come back. Whereas now it's like everything's online pretty mm-hmm. much. So it's a very, very different kind of time.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh you know, it's funny how you mentioned how before the time of social media and then you get presented what you presented and you almost see it just as as it is, right? Because if you have everything else, then you're always comparing it to something else, and then you might not even yeah. start start on anything as well because you're like what's the best method I've got stuck on that a lot as well right like that's it's ha- how to approach this thing in the best sort of way because you want to be doing it in the best sort of way and then that kind of closes your eyes off to I think a lot of a lot of other things as well which maybe if it was just presented to you from some sort of teacher and that was the only way you would give it a chance right so I find I find it very yeah. interesting yeah
1: Totally. We're kind of almost despoiled by choice these days.
0: Mm. And I think uh, Miguel, when he posted something of his history, was he a gardener as well before he became? He a... was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he was. He's got a green finger.
0: <laughs> so maybe there's something yeah. in that. If you, if you become a gardener, maybe there's a higher <laughs> chance of you to get a, like a one-arm handstand.
1: <laughs> yeah, the chances are pretty high, I think.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, I guess when we zoom forward to, I think it was around what two thousand and fifteen. Is that when you started getting a bit curious outside of the yoga scene as well as to what was happening?
1: Yeah, it was. I think it was two thousand and fourteen. I started to just. Uh, I think I got a Cody app, and there was the Dave Duranti was on there. And I started doing some of his gymnastics, like core drills, classes mm-hmm. and stuff. And that's kind of got me interested in, you know, um, just looking outside the box a little bit. But, you know, like even that whole time from 2000 till 2015, I had always like really had this like admiration for capoeiristas. Mm. Like I used to look at the capoeiristas and think, wow, man, like that is really impressive what they can do. And I, But I never made it to a class. I always wanted to, but I never managed to get to one in all those years. But it was always on my radar that one day I would like to take all this, you know, body knowledge and control that I've developed through the yoga and be able to apply it to something like capoeira, something very dynamic and explosive. Mm. Because, you know, that's the thing. Yoga is very, the movements are very, usually done in a very slow, controlled way. And, you know, what I like about looking at the was is the, that mm-hmm. explosive energy, you know, the power. Um, same with break dances as well. I remember back in, in to, from 2005, 6 and 7, I used to teach in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to go up to Union Square very you know quite often and i just watched the break and just be like blown away and but a lot of the time they were doing yoga moves mm-hmm. basically they were just able to you know they were going to loaders half loaders they were doing all that kind of stuff um but they were able to you know make it flow and you know match it to the beat of the music or whatever so it was just really cool and again i always thought i'd love to do breakdancing class but i never I never went to a breakdancing class the whole time. It was always on the radar, you know? So in 2000, yeah, 2015, it must have been, well, end of 2014, um, Ido started to come onto the scene, right? So I started to see his videos on YouTube, and then my best friend in WA ended up meeting Ido, and Ido went and stayed at his house, mm. Uh, and actually, did, he did that a couple of times. Um, unfortunately, I was always in India or somewhere. I was not able to go. So that was like before, you know, like exploded in popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of missed that opportunity, unfortunately. Um, but that's when I started the online training with Ido is uh, at that time
0: awesome yeah it's uh it's funny like how you say sometimes when you have something on your mind and you're like oh I really want to try that but especially when you're committed a little bit more to one path as well you know Mm. there's also like a bit more investigation as well that you want to pursue right and it's like with anything as well like you watch something on the internet or you watch something on on the movies and you're like now I really want to backflip but it's like, yeah. when's, the, when's the right timing, right? So then, Because you know that yeah. it's going to take a lot of work to probably start to get there. And, yeah, it's all that resource management because you're probably still going, oh, you know, from the yoga practice or the core sort of practice, I'm still getting a lot out of it. So, um, yeah, it was, it was... Well,
1: funny you said that, the backflip, because that became the back tuck, uh, mm. became a big goal of mine. That was also something I'd always wanted to do in my life but I never learned it. And then, so what if we were saying 2015, I was 41, right? Mm. So I just knew that if I wanted to pursue all these acrobatic skills, this was the decade to do it because, you know, in my fifties, if I haven't already got that as a foundation, it'd be pretty difficult to learn it, I think. But mm. in my early forties, I was like, okay, I, I've still, you know, I still feel good enough to chase these things. So I actually got my back tuck, I can't remember, that might have been 2017 or 2018, I started to be able to do back tuck, which is pretty cool, and the back handspring, um, those kind of things, mm-hmm. so that, I think that's been a, you know, that was one of the big motivating forces for me in the last five years, it's like, okay, I'm in my 40s, this is probably my last crack at trying to excel in all these other movement modalities, if I leave it much longer than probably it's going to be much harder to do, you know? So that was, that's been a big motivator for me.
0: And how did you go about approaching things like that back tuck, back handspring, you know, I guess coming from yoga and stuff, it's it's very dynamic. It's very into the unknown, you know, quite, quite scary. So what yeah. was your, so what was your process with tackling that?
1: Um, I found that when I, when I moved into the movement, culture movement scene i was meeting lots of people who could do it you know so i would just be chatting and say hey can you do a back tuck or can you do back handspring?" and just a lot of people could do it right so they i just got them to spot me mm. um, that was you know the beginning i went to i think i went to one proper gymnastics class with the harness and everything um, but otherwise it was just getting spotted a couple of times and then It was just a matter of just going for it, you know, just starting off at the beach, finding some rocks to backflip off into water, you know, and then, you know, finding slope at the beach to do the backhand springs, getting Mm -hmm. some spots. I mean, definitely I've had some spills, never (laughs) got injured, thankfully, but, uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of, like, confronting fear. That's Mm. the main thing. And also just being able to understand what's fear for a good reason because fear is there for a good reason, right? Like if you don't have the skill, you shouldn't be trying to do a back tuck. It's not just a matter of visualizing it and then suddenly you can do it. Mm. You know, there's actually the body memory needs to be there. So, um, you know, the fear is also there to help to prevent injury. So just trying to manage, you know, what's healthy fear, what's fear that's going to hold me back. Sometimes the fear makes you freeze Mm. And then you really get messed up, freezing midway through. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Thankfully, no injuries so far.
0: Mm. And moving into the sort of uh, the Edo sort of work, coming from the yoga type of background, uh, how was that transition into learning all the stuff stuff there? Did you find it quite challenging? Uh,
1: Yeah, super challenging. I was still you know, for the first, say, I'd say four years, or three to four years, I was still maintaining like a very full on Ashtanga practice. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with the Ashtanga practice, but it's it's very demanding. Mm. Um, so I was still maintaining that plus adding on Edo's training. And I guess I was young enough still to be able to handle that load. But it, it was intense. And I didn't get any. The only injury I got was a golfer's elbow, mm. and that was from doing learning muscle ups on the rings, and just the volume of it, you know. And plus all the extra handstand work and the mm-hmm. handstand push ups and all that kind of stuff, you know. They don't tell you about that
0: <laughs> when you start
1: going into the world of movement and calisthenics, body weight training, mm. um, you know. It's, often people don't tell you, okay, you need to take your time because your, you know, connective tissue, your joints are not going to be able to handle mm. so much increased load. Yeah. Um, but that was, a, yeah, that was the only main thing, you know. Mm. And yeah. also then going into lifting weights, I hadn't been set foot in a gym for whatever, I don't know, it had been 15 years or more, and then suddenly... With Edo's program, the strength parts, going, stepping foot in the gym again, it was a bit intimidating at first, but then you know, I'm used to it now.
0: And were there any sort of concepts of or ideas that were particularly novel to you during that time, or maybe did they conflict with you a little bit with the way that you were understanding physical practice?
1: I think his uh, idea. I mean, it's probably not just his ideas is that this thing about movement complexity and how, you know, this is so important as you grow older and to keep, um, you know, learn to keep learning, to keep that attitude of playfulness. And then also these, this idea of the generalist and the specialist, right? Mm-hmm. So I had become a specialist in yoga without thinking about it. You know, it just happened. Mm-hmm. And then so when I got to, so when I started learning from him then it's like oh shit you know I'm I want to like I want to expand my skill set so that was a big one but that kind of is at odds with the yoga kind of idea because you know in the yoga tradition you're supposed to take one practice one guru and then just commit yourself to that you know for your whole lifetime so definitely that there's a bit of a conflict in that uh, ideology or philosophy.
0: So, do you still have like a, a guru that you learn off? Um, in, in that case, like, how does that sort of work with all this other work that uh, you do?
1: I mean, I've always been, you know, someone who likes to go take the nectar from different teachers. You know, I've never mm-hmm. been that person who's just like fully committed to one one teacher. I mean, I'm committed to my practice. Um, but not to the point of like, you know, having my blinders on, you know, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. now it's just like, you know, I have teachers, but you know, I'm not like, not really looking for a guru in that sense.
0: Mm. And maybe coming from the other side, like from a, a more generalist movement culture side, what do you think that movement culture can really benefit and learn from yoga?
1: I think that there is a place for specializing as well, you know, like if you're always just jumping from one thing to the other, you know, I in, in yoga, there's, they use this uh, analogy of like a man who's like looking for water and he's like digging a well. And he's like, you know, after like an, an hour of digging, he's only gone down like half a meter and he gives up and he goes to the next spot and he starts digging again. And after another hour, he's, gives up and he goes to the next spot and he starts digging, you know, and he just ends up digging all these holes but never gets to the water. Mm. Whereas if you're just persistent and keep digging, you finally get to the water, you know? So I think that's the value of being a specialist also.
0: Mm. I think that's Um, definitely the challenge for, for when you're presented with this sort of idea, right? Because then you start getting into something and I certainly have as well and you... You end up realizing, say even just building general strength, right? You're like, oh, this really takes like years, right? I can't just do this for a, a few months. This is something yeah. to commit to for for quite some time. And and then you know we only have so many years to live as well. So it's probably a good thing because that realization makes us focused, right? We have to we have to appreciate the the concept of sacrifice, right? We can only do so much within our lives. Um, yeah.
1: And there's, there's definitely value in excelling at one thing, you know, you can be, you can have like a kind of a general baseline and, and explore different modalities, but it feels good to be able mm-hmm. to, at least in your lifetime, master one thing, whether it be, it could be an instrument, piano or guitar or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like if you can find one thing that really resonates with you, it can be a, very, you know, beautiful practice.
0: And so after so many years of practice under your belt, what keeps you going? Like why are you practicing and continue to practice?
1: I don't know, man. Just something in my blood, I think. I, just, <laughs> even at some, I guess maybe it's the dopamine, that you know, that kind of that, the chemical re- reward of achieving something um, You know, I think that's also been something like in the yoga, for example, for many years, there was, you know, like, even though it's supposed to be like this pathless path that you're supposed to be in the moment, not projecting to the future, whatever, there's still, you know, if you're human, you're going to have, you know, goals. And so there was always like, okay, I want to do this posture. I want to do that posture. Uh, I want to do a scorpion. I want to do this. I want to do that. And so I guess I reached a point in my yoga practice where I had done, I had achieved everything that I'd set out to do. So then when I came into this whole movement culture or whatever, it was like it opened up a whole new set of uh, goals. It was like Mm -hmm. all these different things to, to reach for. And so that's kind of keeps me going, you know. It's like that motivates me. Um, but I think now the difference is that because I went through all of that with yoga, it's like now there's you know it's more there's less attachment to it mm. as I'm doing it now in the kind of this m- more this movement field.
0: Yeah, I think. Um this, uh, this word attachment and particularly this concept of attachment to training, I think is, uh, something I, I sometimes think about quite a, quite a bit, uh, especially when mm. you're very, very physically orientated or you learn a lot through your physical practice as well. I always wonder, um, and maybe I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Like, uh, what about the practice when we're like not moving and when not being physical as, as well, do you, what? How do you nourish yourself, or what do you do in terms of these sort of not non physical parts of you know life?
1: Yeah, man, good good one because that what uh, I've noticed coming from the yoga background is like whenever we would have we practice, but it would always you always finish with like some breaths pranayama we call it in yoga mm-hmm. um, plus meditation. Plus shavasana, it's called, you, where you lie down and you just, you know, do a body scan, and you know that can be up to ten, twenty minutes long. So really, you you uh, you're down regulating the sympathetic nervous system and up regulating parasympathetic. I mean, we didn't know all that kind of stuff so much back in the day. There was just how it was done. But you know, in the last few years with all this biohacking that's going on, people are sort of more conscious on what's what's mm. all really happening uh, on that level. And so what I notice is like a lot of the movement practices that I do, it's very much uh, stimulating the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, you know. So if you're not careful, you can just be on this, you know, stimulating the stress response all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you don't take time to br- do some breathing, take time to even lay down, do a, a yoga nidra, a shavasana, then you can easily just put yourself and, you know, a system on edge, which is not a good thing. And, mm. um, you know, it's going to, even from a performance learning point of view, You're not going to progress as quickly if you're not able to tap into that parasympathetic state. And then just as a person for the rest of your day, you know, like with your wife or with your kids, friends or whatever, you want to be able to be back in that calm, relaxed, you know, peaceful state. Mm. So I try to make sure that I still add that in, even if I'm doing a handstand practice or, uh, you know, like locomotion or whatever, try to still do the breath work and meditation. And usually I do a yoga nidra, uh, which is like a guided relaxation where you're lying down. Uh, you do that like a 20 minute one every day.
0: Mm. And what, what sort of, a, yeah, what does that sort of look like? Um, I'm interested to hear like these tools that you use to down regulate the system and, yeah. Pretty much aid recovery.
1: Uh, so the breath work, I mean, in the yoga tradition has a lot of different breathing techniques. Um, one is the kind of more stimulating one, which is like become popular through Wim Hof. Mm-hmm. And then, so like we would call those like a, the fast rhythm where you like basically hyperventilating doing, taking big breaths in and out. Um, And then we have like these slower rhythms, which is, you know, breathing in less air and over a longer period of time. So it's hypoventilating until you're hardly breathing at all. Mm. Um, We have different ones like this alternate nostril breathing. So you're breathing in through left nostril, out through the right, and then in through the right and out through the left. Uh, Another one that's called the prana square. Uh, I think in, I've heard in the, the Navy SEALs use it, they call it box breathing. So you breathe in and then you hold the breath and then you breathe out and then you hold the breath. So say you breathe in for five, hold the breath for five, breathe out for five, hold the breath out for five. So it creates a square. Um, and then something I've been looking more into now is, uh, have you heard of Patrick McCohen and the oxygen advantage?
0: No, I haven't. Huh.
1: Okay. So that's worth checking out, especially any of the listeners should check that out also um, because, and his, his method is based on Buteyko breathing. Have you heard of Buteyko breathing?
0: Hey, This is all new to me.
1: Yeah. 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 So the main thing is always breathing through your nose. Okay. So even in, in Buteyko, Buteyko, they take the mouth closed. Mm. So you force to breathe through the nose. Um, and the goal is to breathe less than normal. Mm. Okay, and to try to build up the level of carbon dioxide in your blood, mm. which gives you a feeling of air hunger, makes you feel like you need to breathe. And so this is a kind of the measure of your cardiovascular system is how much carbon dioxide you can tolerate okay and the, the more carbon dioxide you can tolerate then the more your blood vessels uh, dilate and then paradoxically more oxygen is then transported to your cells and to your organs
0: this is it's very- the opposite of
1: what people think people think if you take deep breaths lots of lots of deep breaths that you're getting more oxygen but actually what you're doing is you're, you're getting rid of carbon dioxide, which actually constricts your blood vessels and less oxygen gets to the cells and tissues.
0: Mm. This um, so, reminds me of some of uh, Simon Borg-Olivia's work. I think I've seen yeah, yeah. talk on this uh, a fair bit and I haven't quite comprehended it. So, yeah, I'm quite interested to hear about this because um, it would... It's be- called...
1: Simon's been talking about this for 20 years. Simon was one of my mentors. Mm. When I first started practicing in Sydney, he was my teacher. Yeah. So he, what he teaches is basically that method. It's called the Bohr effect. B-O-H-R. It was a, Bohr was a uh, scientist He discovered this, you know, over a hundred years ago mm. that actually in the presence of carbon dioxide, the, the blood vessels, the cells, then uh, they dilate and then more oxygen is released into the blood.
0: So with this sort of practice, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of picturing how, how to do it because I guess when you're know, trying to restrict that breathing, it's almost quite stressful as well because you kind of want to breathe a, a, as well, right? Mm-hmm. So how, how does that sort of work? Do you, do you start that with just, I guess, a, a sitting type, practice where then you start becoming aware of that and then you start integrating that into more sort of dynamic movements?
1: Yeah, start with the sitting practice and the easiest, simplest way is just to breathe in for four seconds and really you want to focus on the breath moving into the lower two ribs. Mm -hmm. Okay, so not breathing so much into your chest but really breathing with the diaphragm Mm -hmm. feeling more of a lateral expansion of the lower two ribs. So breathe in for four and then breathe out for six. Okay, so the exhalation is one and a half times of that of the inhalation. Okay, so breathe in for four, out for six. So basically then you're taking six breaths per minute and this is a good healthy breathing rate. Okay, and so you just try to maintain that. If you do that for five minutes, uh, if you watch, you can set a metronome or whatever and just stick to that and you'll find you'll become very calm, very relaxed in that time. Okay, and then from there, you can start adding that into your walking. So just that wherever you're walking, walking around the house or whatever, start to add in. Breathe in for four, out for six. And what you can also do when you're walking is you can add in some small breath holds. So breathe in for four, out for six, and then just come back to normal, and then exhale and hold the breath. Take like five steps or whatever, and then again, breathe in and breathe out. Wait till your breathing comes back to normal. And then again, breathe out, hold the breath out, and continue walking. And then you try to bring that into your training.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Because in in yoga, this has always been there, right? In yoga, you're always breathing in and out through the nose. So I'm, you know, being used to that. Um, But a tendency, especially in hand balancing and, you know, when you're doing acrobatics and stuff, is you tend to forget about the breathing. Mm. Um, But it's really worthwhile to just keep tapping into that. And just try to remember, breathe through the nose, breathe
0: through the nose. Yeah, because that's what I was interested in asking you about, is this incorporation of of breathing technique into more dynamic movements. Because my experience with yoga is, like, I really gained a lot from that focus on the breath in between, you know, moving through the poses. But then yeah. with... Um, uh, with, with some of the other sort of practices that, that I've learned, say, from the movement culture side of things, uh, normally yeah. it's dealt with almost a little bit delineated, right? Like you will sit down and have more of a static breath practice, m- mostly like almost like a meditative type, type, type practice. But then when you're doing your other sort of stuff, uh, apart from maybe like a, a strong brace, right, when you're really preparing for, for weights, the emphasis is not not so much there. Whereas, you know, yoga, it's like every time, like even with some of the classes, like they tell you how to breathe, right. And you have to follow along. So Mm,
1: yeah. Every movement is connected to a breath.
0: mm, mm. So this oxygen advantage, I think is, is really super interesting. And um, do you find that over time then that you establish a new rhythm of breathing? That is that, that pattern that you were saying?
1: Yeah, definitely. It just starts to become like I find myself just all the time remembering, okay, am I breathing uh, through my nose? Am I breathing like with my diaphragm or am I breathing shallow with the chest? So I find myself just throughout the day, I'll just continually just be checking in. Does happen, it's happening automatically.
0: Mm. And how about say during like, when you're doing the soft acrobatics and locomotion as well. So what are you, what are you cueing yourself in terms of breathing when you're going through these movements?
1: Uh, that I haven't really figured out yet in terms of whether there is a right way to like whether or not a movement should be done on any inhalation or an exhalation. I tend just to breathe, let the breath be normal. Mm. Um, my main focus is at the end of a set is to try to make sure that I come back to breath awareness and try to calm my nervous system down and try to reduce, you know, my heart rate so that I'm fully recovered for the next set, Mm. which is quite challenging, especially if you're, you know, one arm handstand upside down with all the blood rushing to your head. It's quite difficult actually to, keep that breath happening through the nose and then also if you're doing like locomotion if you're doing you know if you do five sets of one exercise or whatever it's it's quite a challenge for your your cardiovascular system Mm. so trying to keep the breath calm is you know it it definitely it's um it works on your fitness
0: yeah definitely and i yeah, I can see. It really takes a lot more focus, right? Especially when you're exerting to really try and come back, and then go, okay, like I'm also gonna, I'm trying to trying to practice that because after you exert yourself in a set, that almost feels like that—that's the practice, right? And then the rest time is really like, ah, oh, just let go. But then this is on yeah, yeah, exactly. still neurologically quite taxing. It—it's it, sounding like, yeah, it's a
1: good one, and also you know, it, it actually helps you recover faster mm. because if you're able to bring your breath back under your control, then also your mind will be under your control and then you're, you'll you be ready to go again.
0: Mm. And you talked about this other the type of more upregulating breathing. Um, are there, mm. what sort of situations when you use that type of tool?
1: Uh, we usually use the, do that first thing in the morning. So that's a good one to do, like, just to give you energy to wake you up.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And, and what sort of protocol would, would that be?
1: Uh, so you normally you do that on an empty stomach because we do, like, this this thing called Nauli. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's like the stomach churning. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you breathe in usually, like, 10 times to the chest, and then you exhale forcefully out hold the breath out and then you do it like a stomach vacuum. You suck your belly in and up, and then you can isolate rectus abdominis, and then you do this uh, stomach churning, it's called. So that's one of the exercises. And then also there's like, uh, it's called Bastrika, which is like the bellows breath, where you're breathing in and out of the chest, kind of rapidly like full exhalations inhalations followed by forceful uh, exhalation mm. and yeah. that's the that's the one that you see Wim Hof doing a
0: lot mm. yeah very interesting I see yeah especially that that stomach churning it always like blows my mind when I, I see somebody doing that and <laughs> I've, got, I've only just started a little bit of my journey with the vacuum breathing and I must say it's like is very tiring, you know, you, you do a few of those and afterwards you're like, oh, like, I don't know how to describe it. So it's a different type of sensation to, you know, doing, li- lifting something. But, yeah, it, it definitely takes a lot of effort.
1: Are you able to do it?
0: Uh, so I'm, I'm starting to be able to do, to, to lift my diaphragm up and, and get some sort of good height and maybe hold it for about 15 maybe 20 sort of seconds, but yeah, in terms yeah. of any movement with the stomach, that sort of thing, no, no I haven't got to that stage yet, but um, I'm sure. Yeah. If I keep on continuing potentially.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh,
0: in terms of teaching, I guess, because you've learned all these, you know, various modalities. Um, so on your website, you uh, do this interesting sort of like month long immersion. Uh, what, is the type of stuff that you present with your teaching these days?
1: Uh, So those immersions, like most of the people who come to me, uh, I mean, say all of the people who come to me for those, they're uh, practising Ashtanga, yoga. um, And we have this style of class in the morning where... We call it. It's like a self practice, basically, where everybody is going through their own practice in their own time, um, which is quite unique in the yoga world. Because mm-hmm. most classes in the yoga world are called they're called guided classes, right, where the the teacher sits at the front or stands at the front and does the class with the students, and they all follow along. Mm-hmm. So the um in the stanga method the way we do it is this self practice so uh there is there are six different series that people have to work on i mean nobody to be honest nobody's doing the six series most people are just doing the first or the second and a few people are doing the third
0: mm-hmm. and a
1: few very rarely you'll have someone doing the fourth series um but what that means is that everybody is kind of like this self-autonomous. Uh, so they're able to practice for what, two hours on their own. And then so the, the advantage, I would say, like the, um, what's attractive about that, uh, that method for people is that instead of being at home on their own doing their thing, they're in a group of people who are all doing their thing together. Mm-hmm. Okay, so kind of there's an energy that's lifted, you know, everyone gets lifted when they're in that group setting. And then my role as a teacher is that I just go around and I'm helping people work on different postures, uh, giving adjustments, helping them go deeper into into position, that kind of stuff, you know. Mm. Um, kind of holding space, I would say, is my role in that, in that scenario. And then in the afternoons, um, well, we have different things. Like sometimes I have like a philosophy teacher will come in and at midday will teach some yoga philosophy. And then in the afternoons, that's where I start to add in all the movement stuff. So last year, my big project was introducing to all my students the FRC system, Kin Stretch FRC. Uh, So that was last year. We really worked on that. Um, And we also, like a couple of my students are very good, like some of the top uh, contemporary dancers in Australia. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were teaching uh, like a series of workshops as well. Just using, you know, like con- contemporary dance style uh, techniques, workshops, movement workshop, to help, you know, explore movement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I tend to attract, you know, the type of yogis that I come to me tend to be also pretty open-minded and wanting to learn this other stuff, you know. Yeah. It, kind of, it's a, it works well. It complements. They complement each other.
0: With... Uh when you approach this, uh, type of introduction in the afternoon, uh, yeah. Well, what sort of main ideas or concepts movements do you, do you start them on and start uh, introducing to them?
1: So I've got, you know, the morning routine, I mean, it can, it can be the afternoon routine as well, which is, uh, based on the FRC, just the whole joint mobility stuff, like mm-hmm. just going through the body from the neck down to your toes, just going through each joint and just moving each joint through an active range of motion. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just showing them how to then start to integrate that into, like, so that's all open chain stuff. Then moving to the ground and then showing them how to do all those same joint rotation or movements in a closed chain with the hands on the floor or the feet to the floor. So, you know, all your your scapular pushups and, Isolating the pelvis, all that kind of stuff in your plank, showing them how to do that in a downward dog, you know, and then um, pails and rails, so the isometric uh, stretching, mm-hmm. loading strategies, all that kind of stuff, just showing them how they can approach the yoga poses in a slightly different way using pails and rails, and then also the end range uh, stuff like the lift offs and. All this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So just trying to help them to get a little bit more active, or at least have the awareness of how to be more active in their practice. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's been kind of like pretty useful tool for me to have the last couple of years. Uh, You know, we mentioned Simon. Simon's been talking about this for because he was a physio, right? So his whole thing has always been move actively from your core. You know. The greater the difference between passive flexibility and active flexibility, the greater the chance of injury is, and so on. Um, so, the FRC stuff is nothing new. It's not like they've created mm. anything, it's, it's all there in the science. But what they were able to do is they made a very clear system, which has been, you know, pretty it's, uh, easy to follow. So, mm. it's been a useful tool in that sense
0: yeah I think they definitely have have nailed it in terms of like presenting a sort of a scalable system right which is um it's got its own terminology and
1: yeah exactly
0: I, I almost see it as this uh this reflection of yoga right like with yoga, you just need the mat, you're just in there, and then you have these sort of core positions that you you work on and then FRC is almost like the same with the, like the 90-90 and things like that and everyone yeah. can do it just static almost as well.
1: Yeah I mean if you if all the FRC can stretch positions, the base positions they call them, they're all the same as yoga poses basically. They've just got different names.
0: Mm. I think that goes um back to the whole thing that you know m- movement is all universal right it just comes from different cultures and uh when you find out about it like what you said with the the b-boys as well doing some poses which are very similar to what you do but maybe just in a different type of context right
1: yeah totally yeah i mean the human body has you know certain potential movements that it's capable of And it doesn't matter what culture you're from, you know, Mm -hmm. what race you are, the body's going to express in similar ways.
0: And with teaching, like you just mentioned about your role as like holding space for others. You know, I'm always interested in finding out from people with a lot of teaching experience, what's your view on like, how how do you become a good teacher? Like what, what are the type of qualities or things that you should be focusing on trying to improve in yourself?
1: One of the main things would be to be able to connect with your student, you know, really have that uh, understanding of where they're coming from. I think that's very, very important. Um, And also, I mean, you know, there's different sides to it, right? So you've got, like, the technical information. So, yeah, from the point of view of the human body to have a good understanding you don't necessarily need to know anatomy, but its I think it's useful. Um, but at least you, it, having a, a good understanding of what the body does, right? I think mm. that is because most people, even like say, for example, in the yoga world, even though people might be coming for all sorts of different reasons, in the end, the way, the way that it's transmitted is through the body, through a physical practice. Uh, so to be able to communicate at the level of body is very important. Um, but being able to teach movement from that perspective is uh, definitely an art form. Uh, have you, are you aware of a book called The Language of Coaching by Nick Winkleman?
0: No, I haven't read it.
1: This is another good one. Um, so he talks a lot about different types of cueing and what are the most effective ways to cue? Meaning, you know, the two main ways of cueing are internal cues or external cues. Okay, so like an example of an internal cue: say we have you have like a, a glute bridge. You know, so a, a glute bridge. The internal cue would be, you know, squeeze your squeeze your glutes, squeeze your butts, mm-hmm. or squeeze your butt. Whereas an, ex- an external cue might be, you know, drive your hips to the sky, something like this, you know. So thinking about it, like in terms, this becomes very important, especially in when you're learning acrobatics, you know, when you're learning something like a walkover or a macaco or something like that. If someone tries to tell you, okay, now you need to activate your serratus anterior and then you need to squeeze your glute max and then you whatever, you know, like you're going to just, end up is like paralysis by analysis. Mm. Whereas an external cue would be like drive your hand into the ground, explode your hips to the sky, you know, kick your leg like you're trying to kick down a door, something like this, you know. So these type of visual cues are much more effective than trying to reduce the movement just to what's happening on, you know, at a muscular level. Mm. So I think that is something that's very important for becoming a good teacher. The less words that you're able to use, the more effective you're going to be. Um, I think sometimes I've fallen into the trap of it, of trying to, you know, learning so much about the body and wanting to share it that I end up like, you know, limiting uh, the student's understanding because it's going at a level that's like this paralysis by analysis and micromanaging the movement. So I think that's, you know, that's a, like an ongoing uh, journey in terms of teaching, in terms of what are the cues that are going to really help your student to get the result. And it's not like there's one cue that works for everybody, you know, so you need to be able to relate. That's where it comes back to this thing of getting to know your student, really being able to work with language in a way that they understand what you're trying to say.
0: Mm.
1: So that's definitely one level. And then, you know, in a yoga, the yoga world, I don't know what it's like teaching movement, um, because I've never really done that. Everything that I do is through the yoga community, but there's a lot, um, I don't know, let's just say there's a lot of emotional process happening as well. Um, so in in a sense, you have to be almost like a therapist as well, (laughs) and not necessarily that you need to be able to give good advice or whatever, but you just need to be steady in yourself that people feel safe around you, that they can come and just be themselves and to go in, go inward and learn about themselves. So kind of like you need to be a rock in that sense, I think. I'd say those are the main things in terms of teaching.
0: Yeah, I really loved uh, a lot of those points. Um, You know, this thing of crafting the environment uh, is super important, right? Like the safer that we feel, the more entrusted. I think the more willing we probably are in entering into uncertainty, which I think with a lot of physical movements let's say like you know going into mm. your deep deepest splits is very uncertain right so if you feel a little yeah. bit unsafe you're probably not going to want to enter it but i i want to repeat that thing that you said before which is like to, to almost to say less yeah you know i, yeah. I, I really i really love that and i definitely have been to that place as the teacher where you kind of want to explain everything right because you've learned all the theory and it's like they need to know but maybe they yeah, don't yeah,
1: yeah. Well, the thing is it's been pretty much it's been proven that you can't remember more than seven things maximum, right? Like you can maybe remember a seven-digit phone number but not more than that. And then when, it, even when it, you come to teaching in a class, you probably, students will probably only pick up three things maximum, you know? And if they walk away with one thing that they remember, that you've done a good job.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know but the, the things if you're teaching a group class, then maybe one person's going to pick up three things from one sentence you've said, and then someone else is going to pick up three things from other things that you say, so you still need to kind of share information. It's just that people are not going to be able to assimilate it all straight away and for me like i've I've noticed over the years like I've heard instructions from you know, from yoga teachers or whatever, and then it doesn't really make sense. But then one day, like three years later or five years later, I'll just be in that pose and suddenly it'll click what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. So I guess teaching is a little bit like that as well. You're just planting seeds. And then at a certain point in time, those seeds will start to water. I mean, they'll start to uh, sprout or grow in the given the right uh, conditions.
0: One other thing that I wanted to touch on is, you know, recently you've been um, posting this series with a couple of friends of mine as well, like the the Yoga Mythbusters, which I really love. Um, it's kind of like you know, searching for better answers because, you know, it seems in yoga for whatever reason there's a lot of strong beliefs perhaps uh, that that pervade that culture. Uh, One thing I did want to ask you about maybe some of these other cultures that you've been leaning into, whether it be like the Edo staff or the FIC staff or or whatever else, Um, do you see or observe any sort of similar beliefs which are forming within these cultures, Uh, any sort of dogmas?
1: Um, What I see that's quite similar is that in the same way like in the yogic world, people chase postures, right? They're chasing asanas, whatever. Uh, And the same thing happens in the movement world, in the calisthenics world, body weight training or whatever. It's like there are certain movements that that are considered, you know, like they're the holy grail, right? Mm. And people chase those. And it's just it's the same thing happening just in a different environment. It's like on a deep, subconscious level maybe it's not even subconscious like there's on a deeper level there's this idea that if I get that movement then I'll somehow be a better person Mm. you know I'll get more likes I'll get more followers I'll be considered more of a badass or whatever and so it's quite interesting because I've watched that in myself and I've watched that in the yoga world for so long. And then now that I've, you know, come into the movement world to just see how that same, you know, human trait, you know, that is still there. So I'd say that's one of the big ones. I mean, probably in Ido's world, it's like, you know, he's can like his students consider him to be like a guru or whatever. So, you know, I, I've come from the yoga background And I've seen how problematic it is to have to put someone on a pedestal. Mm. You know, when you put someone on a pedestal, you're putting yourself below them. And also the only place they can go when they one day, they're going to let you down. Right. Because they're only human. And one day they won't live up to your expectations. And then you'll have a falling out and then you have all these problems. So I see that same thing happening in the movement world as well. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, in terms of movement I'd say what happened especially with the FRC thing was what they you know they made this whole and Ido was there as well they made this whole idea like there's no such thing as improper alignment there's just improper preparation Mm -hmm. therefore you can do anything you know you can as long as you are able to uh, progressively overload Uh, your joints and prepare them properly, then you can can do anything. Um, But, you know, to a point, right, that's not to say that everybody should be doing that, you know. There's still a place for just being a little bit conservative in, in your approach. So I'd say that kind of has became a little bit of a dogma as well. And then from the the FRC thing that's been a bit dogmatic is the whole prerequisites idea. Like, if you don't have the prerequisites, then you've got no business doing any movements. So, like, you know, if you don't have prerequisite wrist extension, then you shouldn't do a handstand. If you don't have the prerequisite, you know, shoulder flexion, overhead shoulder flexion, then you shouldn't do a handstand. You know, all of that stuff, and, you know, that can be ends up
0: being a bit dogmatic yeah it's all always very interesting i think at any time where any sort of a m- movement starts gathering up steam right these uh, sort of communal beliefs i don't know how but they they gather sort of this uh, community energy and start becoming stronger and stronger and maybe the original intention was good right but then they start being sort of misconstrued and, and growing. So yeah. I really love the work that you guys are doing, just, you know, pushing a, a more, Hey, let's really consider what we're doing here. Like it, is it in the best of intentions and putting it back to what I see as like reading your own context or whoever's context it is that that's relevant, right? Like the, to, to assess on your your own sort of grounds as to what's actually happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, those guys are way, they know way more than me, Oliver and Scott. Um, but yeah, going deep into all that, you know, the biopsychosocial uh, sort of model of care, like healthcare and, you know, the way to treat people and to deal with, you know, you know even just the whole notion of the body and what it's capable of and injuries and all the rehabilitation and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Because in the yoga world particularly, there's been, I guess, a lot of fear-mongering. And even, I'd say, the movement culture contributed to that a little bit because, you know, like yoga's got such a bad rap for being just about passive flexibility and, you know, like laxity of joints and all this kind of stuff, you know. So there's been... You know, in that sense, people have thought that yogis are all just weak and fragile. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah.
1: And I mean, to be honest, there maybe there is a little bit of truth to that. Um, I think, but it's like anything—if you go too far in any one direction, then you get out of balance. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that yoga—it's—I think what what I've started to realize is more about the dosage. You know, like you can't do like all the yoga stuff is amazing. But if you, if that's all you ever do, then probably you, you're going to run into some problems later on, you know, but if it's, if you're doing that balance with other things and you're going to be okay.
0: Yeah. I think that's when, where the generalist approach or that perspective Mm -hmm. of just, you know, approaching things with curiosity and, having like a you know you can specialize in certain areas but if you play or explore with other sort of things then that that also helps you realize a few more things or opens your body up to a few more uh potential potential le- sort of explorations but um yeah just mindful of your time mark so um, i'm wondering you know what's uh what's sort of ahead for the next few few months? I know you're sort of uh, in India, you got a, a young one as well, but in terms of plans with uh, the practice, teaching, that sort of area, um, what have you got on the horizon?
1: Um, at the moment, our main goal is to get back to Bali because um, we bought a house there in March just before COVID <laughs> and then, you know, just before our mm. baby was born. So we're hoping Hoping we can get back there by the end of the year. Um, and then in terms of practice and teaching, I've actually, I've got three online courses that I've been working on for the last seven months. Um, I'm hoping to get them out there soon and then I'll continue. I've got, you know, I want to basically get all the material, all the stuff that's inside of me. I want to get it, uh, into courses and have it all online and available. I mean, for me, that's going to be the, the future for the next couple of years anyways, just to be, have everything online. Um, seems like the whole world is going that way anyway. So, you know, that's a, it's a good opportunity for me to also <clears throat> dive into that. And then hopefully by middle end of next year or middle of next year, this whole COVID thing will have passed and I'll be able to actually teach people in person again.
0: Mm. That, Fingers that's crossed, a, man. That's a nice thought, isn't it? To interact with yeah. people, you know, touch other people, cue them with your, with, with your hands. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Does> <laughs> Looking forward all to it.
1: Being together again. Mm, mm. And then also like definitely just one, add one more thing is I think, I want to start at when the time is right I'll, I'll start doing more collaborations with different people from you know like i've met so many amazing uh specialists in different fields mm-hmm. it'd be cool to do some collaborations with different people in the coming years
0: well very excited about that i think that's uh Part of maybe the gift of this growing sort of social media culture and connectiveness is that we get to meet all these very interesting figures, right? And maybe under the umbrella of knowing that we're kind of connected in a physical practice and movement and that there isn't like uh, strict boundaries between us. I think many beautiful gifts or new sort of areas can be born, right? So I'm very excited to see if you end up teaming up with somebody and what will come of it.
1: Yeah, man, it's going to be good. Hopefully we'll meet one day in person.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Either in Bali or down here in in Melbourne, Australia, it'd be awesome. But uh, thank you so much for your time, Mark.
1: Thanks for inviting me, man. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you.
0: And that's it. That's episode 32. Thanks to Mark for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate him sharing his time. And I hope you guys got something out from that. I know listening back on that, the whole area about the breath work and breath control it was really interesting, especially around that oxygen advantage. So he mentioned a couple of interesting resources in that chat, and I'm definitely keen to dig through them when I get the chance. So, hope you guys enjoyed. And I appreciate you guys returning and listening to these conversations. If you enjoyed them, please pass it on, share it with a friend. It really helps me spread these conversations out to more people. And if you have any questions or feedback, remember you can reach me on Instagram at phaonp, that's at P-H-A-O-N-P, or you can go onto thepassivehang.com and send me a message there. I have a lot more great guests joining on the podcast. I'll be back next week. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you then.